We are bringing together imperfect people in pursuit of a whole life. Welcome to Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. This week, Pastor Doug Moss shares his message, Authority on Demand, Sons of Anarchy. So believe it or not, today's topic of authority was actually planned months ago. Uh, But I have to say it feels especially timely to me this week. Uh, and I'll explain why a little bit more towards the end, but, uh, but as I start today, I, I want to start by saying something that I don't often have the opportunity to say uh, from the stage, and that is this, how grateful I am to be a citizen of the United States, uh, especially as a son of two Air Force officers uh, who served to protect our country. I've grown up revering America's role to be a protector of democracy and freedom around the globe. In fact, you want to know how patriotic I am, I'll tell you. Uh, I shared last week how much I love musicals. Well, I am so patriotic that I believe Hamilton is only the second best musical ever made about the founding of our country. Anyone know what the best musical is? 1776, hands down. Anyone seen it? Okay, if you have not, you are missing out. You need to see that musical. They made a movie out of it too. Uh, And I love the way it it, it portrayed the characters of especially John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and Benjamin Franklin. I love watching them debate and form the founding principles of a nation that's rooted in freedom and justice. And I gotta tell you, my personal favorite has always been John Adams. I admire his his intellect and his tenacity and his zeal so much. But nobody can doubt that Benjamin Franklin was the most quotable founding father. He said so many wise, witty, and profound things, and a lot of them are quoted uh, in the musical. But he he said this quote, and it's one that's, uh, that's gotten a lot of play these days. See, Benjamin Franklin wrote in a letter to the Pennsylvania Assembly, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety, deserve neither liberty nor safety. Now, as a history buff, I will go ahead and just tell you that this is almost always quoted out of context. context. Uh, And in fact, if you really look at the whole letter, Benjamin Franklin was actually saying the opposite of what people tend to assume he meant by this. Uh, But we don't have to get too deep into the weeds because no matter what Benjamin Franklin intended by this quote, the fact is, This tension between freedom and protection is a really important one for us to wrestle with. Uh, Because after all, this is the tension of all society. This is is what we have uh, to to figure out uh, and and come up with a balance together. Uh, Because you you kind of need both, but, but not either to the extreme, right? If you have too much protection and not enough freedom, you end up with a nanny state, right? But on the other hand, if you, if you have too much freedom, not enough protection, you get anarchy. And, and so we have to find in between these two things the, the balance that lets us live together well. And, and, and some of these are obvious. Some of these are things like, I give up my freedom to drive on the left side of the road because 
It's much safer if we all agree to just stick to the right side of the road and that, that's where we drive in our country, right? That, that's me trading a freedom for the sake of protection. Or I, I willingly give up my First Amendment freedom of speech uh, and, and I don't yell fire in a crowded theater because to do that would cause harm to people in the resulting stampede and panic. And, and so there are things where we, uh, where we just recognize that this is just what we have to, to deal with together. We just have to figure out what's the healthy balance between freedom and protection. And as someone who's grown up uh, in this country and had a lot of conversations about this, I, I would uh, speculate, I, I would go so far as to say that I think most Americans, when we ask, would say that they would maximize personal liberties and freedoms and minimize the rules and the laws necessary uh, for the sake of keeping people protected, right? Uh, you know, this is just how it is. Uh, as much freedom as possible, as little protection as necessary. I think this is where most Americans, myself included, uh, would naturally say we tend to fall. Until we feel threatened. See, when we feel threatened, human nature, we swing hard the other direction. And in a moment of crisis, we will be very quick to sacrifice freedom for the sake of protection. Uh, and I, I know that's true because it's what our founding fathers did. Specifically, I know that's true because it's what happened to John Adams, my own personal hero, my favorite founding father. Uh, I grew up watching 1776 and I loved his commitment to freedom of speech. And then I got to high school history class and I found out that once John Adams was elected president, he passed a group of laws called the Alien and Sedition Acts where John Adams himself made it illegal to criticize him or his political party. And if you did, they would throw you in jail. It's the opposite of freedom of speech. It's the guy that was supposed to get it. Uh, and so I see that, that John Adams, he was willing in a moment of personal crisis to, to prioritize his protection and to minimize freedoms. Or if I'm really looking at this, at this hard and, and, I'm, and I'm really looking at what John Adams did and why, and I'm really looking at how I tend to interact with the world in my own sinful nature, it's really not even this, it's this. That because of our, our human sinful nature, that when we are in crisis, we will value our freedoms over someone else's protections and we will prioritize our protections over someone else's freedoms. It's what John Adams did. The moment he was president and people started to say really mean things about him, he panicked. And then for his own self-protection, he clamped down on the free speech of others because it was a thing that helped him feel better about himself. It was a way to help him feel safe. And I know that this is not only something John Adams does, it's something I do all the time. When I feel threatened, I am quick to clamp down on other people. I, I try to control their behaviors. And the reason the, that I know this about myself, the reason I learned this, and why I suspect it's true for a lot of us, but I, I know it's true for me is this, is because I got married. And when I got married, this ideal picture-perfect version of Doug got really called into question. 
Because our first couple years of marriage, they were really hard. And uh, 15 years down the road, I'm so grateful to be able to say that I I am in such a great marriage. And my wife and I, we love each other, but we have fought hard to get here. And in fact, we've had to be in marriage counseling for about half of our 15 years. And it's been one of the healthiest things we've done. But, But it's been this hard work because we were doing this to each other. That in our, in moments of crisis and stress and and exhaustion, when we had that first baby and none of us were getting any sleep and and so we were all just just grouchy and crabby. And and in that moment of of uncertainty and fear, we were just clamping down on each other so hard, being so rigid with each other. And so we we found our first marriage counselor and she was a woman that went to our church. She was amazing. Uh, And she shared something with us in that very first year of marriage counseling, something that has stuck with me uh, in the 13 years since. She said this, she said, much of our suffering is actually caused by our inability to tolerate uncertainty. Much of our suffering is caused by our inability to tolerate uncertainty. And I'll tell you, when she first said this to me, I didn't really get it. I don't know how this is landing for you, but but I thought, "Ah, that feels a little simplistic. That feels reductionistic. I'm pretty sure my suffering is caused by my wife not loving me as well as she could be. I think that's why I'm suffering. And yet, in the decade plus since I learned this truth, I've tested it in my life, and I I have seen how right that counselor was that we are so bad at uncertainty that that we human beings, we will rush to find the quickest way possible to resolve that uncertainty, even if it's not in a healthy way. Uh, In fact, often in the unhealthiest way, because the quickest way to reduce uncertainty is always going to be control. It's always going to be clamping down in control over you, over the other person, over the situation that you're in. And, and that desperate need for control, which is what lets us clamp down on other people's freedoms or, or prioritize our protection over others, it's that need for control that actually does the most damage. And I've learned that, that my, whenever I'm in crisis, whenever I'm, I'm in moments where I feel the need to protect myself, it is my forcing of control that has always caused me greater suffering in the end even greater than what the original crisis was. Uh, I I noticed it at work, when when, when there's a crisis at work and I'm afraid that I might fail personally or that we as an organization might fail, I clamp down to control the people and the environments around me and then it stresses them out and and it it makes them less trustful of me. Or I've found in in disagreements and struggles with my wife over the years, which you're gonna have, this is the thing about, about carving out life together with someone, you're gonna have hard moments, areas of disagreement and conflict. And in those moments, my desperate striving for certainty and control has caused far more pain than the actual uh, thing that caused the disagreement in the first place. I've been in moments of tension with my wife where, where I've just gone ahead and said, you know what, I'm just gonna say everything I've ever been feeling and, and then she will be so clear how I feel uh, about, about this moment, right? And, and to recognize that in that moment, I'm, I'm, not trying, I'm not fighting for unity with my spouse. I'm not trying to solve a problem. Uh, I'm trying to lash out in a controlling way Uh, to to reduce the uncertainty. And yes, it makes it worse. It prolongs the fight, but at least I feel comforted knowing that I was in control of that moment. That I said the thing I I felt like I needed to say. There was no no, uh, lack of clarity or certainty. I see it in my parenting 
There's nothing more fearful and uncertain than raising children because I care so deeply how well they turn out. And yet I recognize at the end of the day, I'm maybe contributing at best 50% of who they're gonna grow up to be. That their, their friends and their structures, their environments, their personality, all of these things are outside of my control. And so often when I find myself clamping down on my children, it's not actually because they sassed off to me in the moment or because they, they, they hit one of their siblings. It's because in my need to minimize my own uncertainty as a parent, I cause more harm for them. You see, what I've, what I've learned is something that uh, Dan Allender says, that I've seen it over and over again, that, that we will almost always default in moments of crisis and uncertainty, we will default to control as our primary defense mechanism from the fear that it arouses. And that this plays out in kind of three broad ways, that we're gonna, that, that to try and create some illusion of certainty and control, we're, we're gonna do one of three things, or all of them. We're gonna to resort to blame and defensiveness. You know, blame the other person, defend myself because that allows me to control the narrative. Or I'm gonna going fall back on my own self-righteous image. I'm gonna be sanctimonious because, because then I can at least control how I present myself to the world. Or we're gonna to try to control the behavior of others. The thing that, that is making us feel threatened or uncertain or scared, if we can just clamp down on that, if we can punish that, it brings some illusion of control back into our lives. It makes us feel better. This plays out for me every time, right? We, we have an issue right now in my family where, where my wife can never find her charger, which is fine, except that I always keep my charger in one place and one place alone. It is on my nightstand. It is always plugged in on my nightstand so that when I get to the end of a stressful day, I can just reach over, plug in my phone and, and snooze peacefully knowing that it will be at 100% charged by the morning, ready to get me through the next day. Except for those days where I get to bed late at night and I go to plug in my phone and the charger is gone. And she's used it and she's moved it somewhere and she never remembers where. Which is why hers are always lost, right? And in that moment of stress and frustration, that moment, what do I do? I, I, I blame. I say, this is the story here. The story here is you, you don't respect my things. You don't respect the things that matter to me. This is your fault that my charger is gone. And I would never do this to you. I would respect your property. I, I, and, and the fact that you don't, that just shows that I'm the one that's right here in this moment. And in fact, if you keep doing this, you know what? I'm just gonna hide your phone. Just gonna hide it. And we'll see how you like it when you can't find a thing that's important to you. And then if you can't find your phone, you won't need to charge it either. And you'll leave my charger alone. We go through all of these, any crisis, any uncertainty, human nature, I am persuaded, we will respond to uncertainty by clamping down in control. We see it play out in history, all throughout history, every strong man and dictator ever, these are the three buttons that they push to maintain power. They, they, they tell the people, hey, there's a group of people and it's not you, but there's a group of people and it's their fault the problems that we're having, whether, whether it's inflation, whether it's poverty, whether it's this, that, that there is a group of people, they're the ones to blame. 
And then, and then the dictator says, and, and you know what? It's not you, you're righteous, you're, you're the good people. You're the ones that, that share my values and beliefs. We're on the right side. And so if you will keep me in power, I will make sure that I punish the ones responsible for, do, for doing what they're doing to our country. See, this is the playbook of the strong man and dictator because this is how deeply wired into us this is. This is why we struggle so much uh, in crises around us uh, because we, we resort to these three things and, and, and it brings out the worst in us. Because when someone gets mugged or, or harassed or abused, we need to resort to these things for our own sake because it makes us feel better. Well, you know, they shouldn't have been walking in that neighborhood so late at night. Well, they shouldn't have stayed in that relationship. They shouldn't have worn that outfit. I would never have done those things. So I'm safe. And they only got what they deserved. And this, this need of ours for certainty and control This need is why it's so painful when a godly man dies for no earthly reason. Because it strips away all of these illusions. Because there's no way to pretend that I am safe because of my image. He was a better man than I. So I've got no no illusions to fall back on. There's nobody to punish. Who can I punish for this? There's nobody to blame. And yet for the sake of control, for the sake of certainty, we need to blame somebody. It's how we're wired. And God in his mercy, he accommodated our desperate need for blame. You may not know this, but but God actually gives his people a ritual way to regain control in the midst of chaos and crisis. It's a bizarre and rarely preached about part of the Old Testament, but this is a true thing. I want want you to know what what, um, God gave his people in Leviticus. This is the first law book. And that God said to his community of faith, he said, Aaron, who was the chief priest at the time, he said, Aaron is to take two goats and then cast lots between them, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and he'll sacrifice that goat for a sin offering. Now that part was pretty normal for Old Testament sacrificial practices. But, this is the unusual part, but the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement for their sins uh, by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. And so when Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward that live goat and he is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins. And he's gonna put them on the goat's head. And then he shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it in the wilderness. This is a fascinating and weird and beautiful gift of God 
to, to give his people a way to find certainty in the midst of struggle. He gave them an animal that they could blame, to, to use to make themselves right in their image, uh, and, and then to punish it for their own behaviors. And ever since that, that moment, in a crisis, God's people could always just bring on the goats and ritualistically get back this feeling of control during a moment of crisis. But then here's the problem. God's people stopped scapegoating the goats and they started scapegoating other people instead. See, a few thousand years later, when the people had gotten really good at this, and this is our passage for today, in John 8, when, when God was walking the earth in the form of a man, Jesus, uh, this moment happened. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote in the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now this is a confounding story. Uh, It's a story, in fact, that people have never really known what to do with uh, because there are a lot of upsetting elements about this story. And I want to call a few of them because I I think, at least today, we're often upset for the wrong reasons. Uh, I I think these days in in our modern morality, the the, the first thing that bothers us is that the punishment certainly doesn't seem to fit the crime. I mean, yeah, you you probably shouldn't commit adultery, but but stoning? I mean, just make her wear a scarlet letter A on her clothes and, and move on, right? Or, I think the reason I've struggled with this story is because we tend to read it, or at least I've tended to read it, through a modern day lens of freedom versus protection. See, with our freedom values, we say, hey, she wasn't hurting anybody. She should be free to sleep with whomever she wants. But on the other side, if people are free to just break whatever laws they want, then we'll have anarchy and the downfall of our society. Because if you look at this through an authority lens, it it sure seems like Jesus himself is saying that laws don't matter, everybody's free from earthly consequences, and that's a beautiful story, Jesus, but it's no basis for a system of government. You can't have a society functioning that way. Except that I've come to see that I don't think this story is about any of those things. I don't think this is a story about freedom versus protection. I think this is a story about scapegoating. 
that this is a story about our uncertainty versus our attempts to control others. You see, the Pharisees and the leaders at this time, they were, they were caught up in the middle of countless crises. I mean, they were under the, the harsh thumb of Rome, which was an incredibly oppressive uh, empire. Uh, there was problems with religious schisms. Uh, they were fighting with, with each other within the church far more than we are these days. They had problems with poverty, problems with immigrants. They had all these things going wrong and they were powerless and out of control on all of those issues. But you know what they could control? A poor woman on the bottom of a totem pole who slept with the wrong guy. See, notice what the Pharisees were doing. See, they're saying all of our struggles are her fault. And we, we would never do this. We would never be sexually promiscuous. We're the, we're the good guys. And, and so we need to punish her. We need to make an example because if we do that, then we will get the illusion of certainty back. See, this is what I believe is going on in this story and why we miss it so much because we miss this, this underneath thing that's driving all of it. And the reason I, I believe this is, it is because I recognize in the Pharisees' behaviors that this is exactly what I do. This is how I fight for control and certainty. And it's only when I admit that and recognize that this story is about our sinful need for control that we can finally understand why Jesus handled this moment the way he did. You see, recognize what happened, that, that with a simple sentence, Jesus punctured all of their illusions. By simply saying, let the one who is without sin throw the first stone at her, he changed the narrative. He said, hey, you think this is about blaming her? You've all got problems too. He changed the narrative. He took away their self-righteous image. He punctured the facade that they'd put. And he was reminding them, if you didn't know, by the way, that the law of Moses does not say to stone a woman caught in adultery. See, the law of Moses says you stone both people who are caught in adultery. It's a two-person act. And it begs the question, why was the woman and the woman alone being held accountable for an action that required two people? Because Jesus pointed out that this was about their hip hypocritical self-righteous facade, that there was a Pharisee or a religious leader that should have been out there being stoned as well. He punctured their sanctimony and he took away their moral right to punish her for the sake of their own desperate need for control. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they never forgave Jesus for it. In fact, they then turned all of their desperate need for control onto him. So now they didn't blame the woman anymore, now they blamed Jesus for disorder and unrest. They comforted themselves that they were the Pharisees and he was a dirty, seditious, second-rate rabbi. And then they put him to death, confident that by punishing him for his insolence, they were now comfortably back in control. And by doing so, they accidentally fulfilled God's plan to set the whole world free from the control of sin and death. Because God had one more use for a scapegoat. So we look at the Gospel of John, and we look at the first time John the Baptist sees Jesus. 
And he sees it coming towards him and he immediately says, look who it is. And he was revealed by the Holy Spirit that Jesus was who? The Lamb of God, who just like that scapegoat in Leviticus, takes away the sin, not just of God's community of believers, of the world. And so when the Pharisees had Jesus put to death, they unknowingly fulfilled God's master plan. The writer of the Hebrews described it uh, this way. So, so years later, they reflected and they said, look, when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he did not enter by the means of the blood of goats or calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood. And he thus obtained eternal redemption for us. You see, Jesus willingly chose to be our eternal scapegoat. This ritual that God gave in the Old Testament was merely paving the way so that we would understand that when Jesus came, we now would always have a bizarre gift of God that we could have certainty in the face of all crises, all, all uncertainties around us, that because Jesus willingly surrendered his own control, and he could, have, he could have controlled that situation any way he wanted, and yet he chose instead to surrender to hostile people and to even let them put him to death. And because of that choice of Jesus, you and I now have a divine certainty in life, that we have been made right by Jesus, and that because you and I now have an eternal reservation in heaven, we no longer need to fight for control here on earth. You see, for all of our illusions of certainty, the only healthy certainty is this, that Jesus paid it all. Jesus is and was and forever will be our scapegoat. And because of that, we don't have to fight for these illusions of control. We can rest confident in the goodness of God. This is how Dan Allender puts it. He says, confident in the goodness of God is actually what we need, much more than we need this false sense of control. But we will only trust in the goodness of God to the degree that we have a history of brokenness and surrender that the only way to puncture our desperate need for an illusion of control is, is to find a way through brokenness and surrender to trust God's goodness. You see, my belief is that Christians get authority all wrong when we try to use our power to coerce others in a desperate grasp for a false sense of control. In fact, I, I am deeply concerned when Christians talk about their freedoms in the temporal kingdom, because if we truly felt the spiritual freedom that we have in Christ, we wouldn't have to fight for it for ourselves so much. And what I've seen in my own life and what I suspect is true in the lives of others is, is that when people are fighting for, for their freedom, it, it's because I and others are resisting the brokenness and surrender that God's asking us to experience in that moment instead. That brokenness and surrender that would actually give us true freedom. I get concerned when Christians talk about their protections 
Because in our protectionist fears, we will, just like the Pharisees, we will resort to scapegoating and blame, and it will lead to harsh, controlling laws and rules and standards that simply hurt others around us. What I've come to believe is that peace only ever comes from God when we finally admit that we cannot control our uncertain world or the people around us. When we face the painful truth that you and I cannot truly make anything happen. I can't make this church thrive and grow. I can't make my children follow in my footsteps of faith. I can't force intimate joy with my wife. And you and I will never have confidence in the goodness of God until we've fallen on our faces in the mud, been made a fool, experienced public humiliation, and it's then and only then, bleeding and choking in the dust, waiting to be stoned by others for our failures, that we will finally allow ourselves to take the hand of Jesus to let him pull us up out of the dust and tell us that he does not condemn us for our mistakes or for our futile attempts to control uncertainty. In brokenness, you and I get to surrender to God's story, whatever he may be writing through you and around you. You get to surrender yourself. You get to surrender control of others and you're invited to turn it all over to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what I believe is that once you do that, there is nobody on earth who can ever control you ever again because there is nothing they can take from you once Jesus has given it to you. And there is nothing they can promise you that Jesus hasn't already freely offered to you in love. You see, with all due respect to Ben Franklin, I think that the tension for the Christian is not between freedom and protection, it's between our control or our surrender. And when we choose control, we inevitably make ourselves and others miserable. But when we choose surrender, Jesus Christ gives us freedom and joy, protection, all of the good gifts that God has wanted us to have from the beginning. Amen. As we turn to our next song, I, I want to circle back around and say that this topic has been scheduled for months to be for this weekend, but I am so grateful to get to share with you today in honor of my friend Chris, because it was really only this week that I figured something out that the reason Chris made such an impact on so many people was that he was the least controlling person I've ever met. Uh, and, and I do believe that, that that is the thing that made him so powerful, that, that he didn't ever, I, I never once in seven years of working with him, I never once saw him blame somebody or feel a need to prop himself up or, or try to, to force or, or coerce someone else's behavior. He just naturally, freely lived a life of, of no need for certainty and control. 
And if you were here on Friday, you heard that one of Chris's favorite quotes was uh, from Jim Elliott. It says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And what I've learned and experienced directly from Chris is that he is a man who surrendered all illusions. He gave them away, all illusions of control, protection, certainty. And in return, he gained from Jesus a life of passion and freedom that could not be taken away, not even by death itself. And so as I resolved to try to move forward in this tension, to sacrifice my idol of control at the cross of Christ, I, I, I pray that you will experience that in your own lives, that, that there will have been a Chris for you, someone who shows you what it looks like when we willingly surrender the joy and the freedom that comes on the other side. And so let's together continue to proclaim in the words of song all this goodness that God gives us, that it's only because of our trust in him that we can surrender control. It's only because we believe that God will fight for our goodness, for our good outcomes, that we can surrender to his love. So would you all please stand up with me and let's sing our closing song together. Thanks for listening to Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. If you would like to hear more messages like this, hit the subscribe button. You can also find more resources at our website, pathfinderstl.org.